This is the Anthem CDA podcast, a church in the heart of downtown Court Lane. Join us as we seek the presence of God, learn from His Word, and build lifelong connections. We hope this week's teaching brings life and encouragement. Welcome to Anthem. chapter 1 again, uh, specifically just two verses again. We're going to be in verses 12 and 13, if you guys want to turn there. And let's pray before we get going. Heavenly Father, uh, it's a great day, and we are a blessed people. And so this morning we come before you, and like every week, we want this time that we have together to mean something. We want it to be valuable, beneficial for our lives, for our walk with you. And so this morning, Jesus, we invite you by your spirit to be in this place, to be working amongst us, uh, to take your word, to plant it deep within our hearts. And I just pray for each and every individual in this room as I know that we often come here on a Sunday morning from many different backgrounds. There's some of us that came here kicking and screaming because somebody drug us here. There's some that came here this morning in the midst of a lot of hurt and pain and just experiencing even some of the temptations, um, the wilderness season in their life like we're going to talk about this morning. Um, there's some of us that are just here this morning eager to learn. And so we all come from different facets, but it's your spirit that brings us together this morning. You've ordained this time, and it's not by coincidence that we're here. And so I pray that we could sort of take a deep breath this morning and allow your spirit to do the work that you want to do in us, God, and to just sort of set aside all the things from our week and maybe our morning that could be distractions to us to give you our time and attention and to worship you through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys all right this morning? Okay. <clears throat> so again, we're going to work in, uh, into Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 this morning. And we're watching as Jesus begins his earthly ministry, right? It's officially launched. So Jesus spent 30 years of his life on this earth prior to actually engaging in his ministry, like his service to the Lord. And so we're just entering into uh, the season where Jesus is baptized He's anointed by the Spirit, and then he's sent out, and he's going to begin this ministry. And so in verses 7 and 8, as we read a couple weeks ago, um, his arrival is announced by John the Baptist, right? He said, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Spirit. And then Jesus appeared at his baptism in verses 9 and 11, as we talked about last week. And one of the things we talked about last week is that Jesus wasn't baptized to be cleansed of sin, right? Jesus had no sin. He wasn't being baptized to be cleansed. It wasn't about purification. Jesus was baptized to publicly accept his Father's mission, uh, to be the Savior of the world. We talked about last week how Jesus wasn't purified in the water, but Jesus was actually purifying the water. And as soon as Jesus is baptized, he's anointed by the Spirit for what's ahead. And so Jesus hears the voice of his Father and, and acknowledging him as his Son, approving of him, saying, yeah, I'm pleased in you, like in every way. And so Jesus receives this identity before all these people, like hundreds of people that are standing on the riverside watching Jesus be baptized and seeing this take place. And so there's no ifs, ands, or buts in this moment, right? That if you're witnessing this, you understand who Jesus is. There's a proclamation being made. 
But the passage that we're going to look at this morning reveals even more about the preparation of Jesus for the mission that God had for him to this fallen world, to, to fallen humanity, to simple man. And so as soon as he's baptized, the Spirit of God, it says, immediately drove Jesus into the wilderness. This, this phrase, immediately drove. And this word drove is a really strong word. It means to throw or to cast out. It means to be forced out. It, it, there's, it, it's like he's being driven out. He's being cast out. And so this doesn't suggest that Jesus had to be forced to do the will of the Father. That wasn't the case. It, but it simply means that the Spirit of God moved upon Jesus in such a strong way that he's led into the wilderness to be tested. Um, let's read Mark 1, 12 and 13. Just these two verses for a moment. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. That's what we got. Um, I'm, I'm so fascinated by this passage because Jesus went through this period of temptation and he comes out of the other side of this completely victorious, right? Every person in this room has experienced or faces times of temptation in your life. All of us do, right? We need help when those times of testing come in our lives because unlike Jesus, we actually fail in this area far more than we succeed. And so this passage gives us some much needed help and hope when our times of testing and temptation come in our lives. So let's look at these verses and talk about the temptation of Jesus. So since Mark's account of this event is really limited, it's two passages that Mark uses to talk about this event. Um, so I, I also want to pull in Matthew chapter 4 this morning so we can see a little bit more detail that Mark does not give us. You can find Matthew's account in Matthew 4, verses 4 through 11. And so maybe keep your finger on one page and um, we'll go to Matthew in a little bit from the book of Mark. But I want to show you some details of Jesus' temptation that can help us when we face temptation in our own life. So look at Mark 1.12 with me. I want you to see the timing of Jesus' temptation. Right, We see Mark use this word immediately, many times throughout his gospel. It's like there's this sense of urgency that Mark uses. So we can gather that Jesus faced this trial in the wilderness right after his baptism is completed, that he gets sent out. There's no lag in this action. So one moment Jesus was hearing the approval of the Father, he's receiving the anointing of the Spirit, and then in the next moment, he finds himself being compelled into the wilderness and being tempted. And so there's this amazing lesson in there for those of us that are followers of Jesus, that we are never more vulnerable than, we're than when we're coming out of a time of great victory in our life. And I don't know if that rings a bell with you in this room. Um, we're never more vulnerable than when we come out of a time of great victory. Satan loves to attack us when we think we're the strongest when we think we've, we've accomplished and we've been victorious. And so we see this confirmed even in passages like 1 Corinthians 10, 12, which says, therefore let anyone who thinks that he, she stands, take heed lest they fall. If you look at Elijah on Mount Carmel, he prays this short prayer and the fire of God falls and consumes the sacrifice. He takes 450 prophets of Baal, and he has them all put to death. He prays again and it rains for the first time in three and a half years. He even outruns these chariots of King Ahab all the way to Samaria. And Elijah is at the top of his game. Like, it looks like it's all going for him, right? He's like a Swifty, right? Everything's good. 
And so fast forward like less than 24 hours later after all of this, Jezebel sends him this word that she's going to do the same thing to him that he did to the prophets of Baal. So 1 Kings 19.2, what does Elijah do? Does he remember the power of God and say, bring it on, Jezzy, God can, God, you know, God can handle you? No, he actually runs away in fear. After this great victory and then this threat, he runs away. So for us, like we need to beware that, that when, when you have like a spiritual victory or this mountaintop experience in your life with the Lord, we sometimes can have this tendency to think that we're invincible, that we've reached a place where the adversary, the enemy, the devil, Satan, can't touch us. But when you think like that, you're probably headed into a time of testing. At least that's the way it's been in my life. So look at verse 12 and see where he's being tempted. We're told that Jesus is sent into the wilderness. Again, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the wilderness. The Jews saw the wilderness as a place of danger. It was like a place of gloom, right? The wilderness was a terrifying place. I talked a couple weeks ago, again, about how our context for wilderness, how many of you in this room love to be in the wilderness? And you think North Idaho wilderness. I love to be out in God's creation, out in the forest. Like, it's just so amazing out there. But this was not that kind of wilderness, Right? This was a dry, desolate, mountainous region. And so I want to show you a couple pictures of what this looked like. I mean, it looks like Star Wars, doesn't it? It's crazy. Uh, I think there's one more picture. It's actually terrifying to be out there for 40 days and 40 nights. I want you to think about this. Like, can you hide from any animal in that? Absolutely not. If anything, you're more apparent, Right? And so this is the wilderness that Jesus goes out into. So for the Jews, this wilderness represented everything that was evil and separated from God. Like this was terrifying. And so Jesus is sent into the wilderness to do battle with the devil in the devil's territory, literally. And so Jesus had already invaded the enemy's territory when he was born into this world, right? He came into um, Satan's world. Like we, we know that scripture says that that this world, this earth, that Satan is the God of this world. Jesus came into the devil's territory. And when Jesus came into this world, he was declaring war on the enemy. He was literally going into battle against the enemy. But in this temptation scene, the, 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 the battle lines between Jesus and Satan are clearly drawn, like from the outset of this. The temptation of Jesus served three basic purposes. One, uh, the devil found out just who he was dealing with, like who Jesus was. Two, Jesus experienced the Father's ability to take care of him and be provided for by the Father, like you and I should be dependent upon the Father. Three, that we can glean from Jesus' experience and see that there's help for us when we face our own times of testing in our life, right? And we should be encouraged to see that outcome, that Jesus endured temptation, that Jesus endured the testing, that he's able to help us when we face those times in our own life. So verses 12 and 13, what were the trials that existed of Jesus' temptation? Because Mark's description of these events is super brief, right? It's these two passages, but there are some important truths that lie in here. So who was it that led Jesus in this period. The, the temptation was all about Jesus going to battle against the enemy, but Mark is really quick to tell us that the Spirit of God is the one who caused Jesus to go into the wilderness. 
So when temptations come, they never come from the hand of God. Like God never leads people into sin. That is not what God does. But he is in the business of leading us away from evil, right? However, he will send us into periods of testing, into times of testing in our life. He does this not to cause us to fail, but to actually cause us to grow. He does this to mature us in the Lord. He knows that our best growth comes when the pressure is on in our life. We're refined. There's something about that testing that does something in us, for us, through us, when we become dependent on the Lord. He knows, again, that our best growth comes when there's pressure. And so God will not send you into a time of time of temptation to sin, but he will send you into a time of testing to help you grow. Like, that's his intention. God will never send you into sin, but he puts you in places where your faith will be tested. Satan also uses those times of testing that God takes us out to actually tempt us. Satan uses those times when God intends for us to grow, and we get in those seasons of temptation, Satan comes along and he begins to use those times to actually tempt us as well, to draw us away from the Lord, to freak us out, to cause us to worry, and to just kind of wreak havoc on our souls. But in this one wilderness experience, think about it, Jesus is cut off from friends, he's cut off from family, he's alone for this time of testing, and his only companions were wild beasts, the angels, and the devil. This is who Jesus had in this time. I don't know why in the world Mark mentions these wild beasts, but he may have mentioned them to emphasize the fact that Jesus is in this barren place inhabited by these wild animals, that there's some level of fear there. Um, and so the deserts in Jesus' day were full of lions, they, had, they were full of hyenas, uh, wild boar, jackals, like the gnarliest beasts of prey existed out in these wilderness areas. And so some believe that these animals may have even recognized their creator and came to comfort Jesus in his trials. Kind of interesting. But I want you to see this, that the angels did not give him food until the testing was over. So the angels comforted Jesus in this time, but they didn't give him food. Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Matthew 4.11 says, then the devil left him And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This word ministered that we see there is the same word translated as deacon. And this word actually means to wait tables, to offer food, to to offer food or drink to guests. It means to serve. But they were with him during this entire ordeal. So they communed with him. They gave him emotional, spiritual, and, and mental support during this time of testing. But Jesus was not fed until 40, after the 40 days were up. So we also see that the Spirit of God was there to give Jesus comfort during this trial. The Holy Spirit, we know, is called the comforter, right? In the book of John, this word comforter refers to one who comes alongside of another to offer aid and comfort. And then, of course, the enemy is also present in this wilderness time with Jesus. And he's there to see Jesus fail. That's what he wants. He came to tear the Lord down, to defeat him if he could. And I wonder how many times during those 40 days that Satan told Jesus that no one cared. I wonder how many times in those 40 days that he told Jesus how foolish he was for trusting God. You really think you would have done this? I mean, think about the lies that were pitched to Adam and Eve in the garden. I wonder how many times he pointed out the fact that Jesus was alone, that he had no food and no friends. I mean, it makes me think of the lies and the voices that we hear in the midst of our times of of, of testing and trial. 
But there are times when it feels like we're walking through the hard places of life and we're all alone, that there's nobody with us. And it seems that the only one around is the enemy. Like he just brings the onslaught and there's nobody else around to comfort us. And so he comes around to do to us exactly what he did to Jesus. He comes to mock us. He comes to mock our faith. He comes to challenge our our, our resolve to trust the Lord. And then even when it seems as if we're all alone, there's a reminder for us that we're actually not, right? I wonder how many times angels were there ministering to us in ways that we never knew will know the side of heaven in your life. I think there's constantly opportunities where angels are ministering to you and I, and we just don't even know that it's happening, that they're looking out for us and that they're comforting us. But we're also promised that the Lord himself is there with us in these times in our lives. Like even when you can't see him, when you can't sense him, when you can't feel him, he's there with us, he's in us, he's with us, and he'll never leave us nor forsake us. The Lord knows just how to help those who are lonely because the Lord himself has actually been lonely. This is one of the greatest things about Jesus, that the God-man in the flesh willingly put himself in a position of being human to feel, sense, experience what you and I experience. No other God that anybody serves or any other religion can make that claim about the one that they serve. That they were willing to put themselves in a place to become like, to experience like the ones who they're encouraging to follow them. Most of the time, these gods are like, sitting up on their high horse on their thrones and they would never come down and be with the peasants. And yet Jesus' whole ministry revolves around him coming down and serving us and washing the feet of his disciples and ministering to people and going through life and experiencing the ups and the downs that you and I experience. What an amazing thing. Third thing is the, the length of time. So this, this time of testing that Jesus experienced is 40 days. We know this. The number 40 in the Bible is used for times of testing. It's used for times of probation. It's used for times of preparation. Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. Moses spent 40 years on the backside of the desert in training. The spies spent 40 days spying out Canaan. The, the rains flooded the earth for 40 days and nights during the flood. So the number 40 is this number that's associated in Scripture with testing. So we're told by Matthew that Jesus fasted for these 40 days in Matthew 4, 2. That he also spent that time in close communion with his father. That he was preparing himself spiritually for this showdown that was coming when Satan would unleash these temptations at him. Jesus was actually preparing for battle and spending time with his father. But this time of testing has lasted 40 days for Jesus. We never know how long our times of testing will be when they come our way. We have no idea. Sometimes you guys experience times of testing and trial in your life that go on for years, and you wonder, like, when will this ever stop? But we need to be prepared for them when they come. We need to weather those times in the grace of God. We need to exit those times with a testimony that's intact, where we have walked with Jesus, we have spent time, we've communed with him, we have drawn from him in those seasons. And we don't know how hard the battle may be, but we do have his promise that he will support us through these times regardless. Fourth thing is the weight of this temptation. Mark simply simply tells us that Jesus was tempted of Satan, is what Mark says. 
And so this implies that he was attacked by the enemy during this entire 40-day period, right? So Matthew tells us that it was at the end of the 40 days when Jesus was weak from fasting and he's hungry that Satan actually comes against him with the strongest and most pointed attacks. Matthew 4.2. So in order for us to understand what it is that Jesus faced and what it teaches us, I want to look at Matthew's account of what happened after these 40 days. So turn to Matthew 4 with me. And let's look at these three temptations that are mentioned here and see what we can glean from them. The first temptation, Matthew 4, verses 3 through 4. It says, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So in this particular temptation, Satan questions Jesus' relationship with the Father, right? No doubt Satan had heard the Father's declaration in Mark 1.11 that he was his son in whom he was well pleased. And now Satan calls that relationship into question. He mocks Jesus and he says, look at you starving here in the wilderness. If you're really the son of God, why are you starving to death in the wilderness, Jesus? Use your power, turn these stones into bread, feed yourself since you're the son of God. Like, make it happen. Now, there's no question that Jesus could have turned these stones into bread if he wanted to, right? Very easily, Jesus could have just been like, forget this, you know, I can do what I want. He had the power to do it. And it's not a sin to want to actually meet a legitimate need. But to use his power in that way at this time would have shown a lack of faith in the Father for Jesus. There's lessons for us to be learned in this, where Jesus deliberately held out in those cases to show that he was dependent on the Father, just like he would encourage you and I to be so as well. So this temptation here was for Jesus to act independently of the Father and the Spirit. The devil wants Jesus to do his own thing. And so Christ's answer to the enemy showed the condition of his heart, didn't it? That he would rather starve to death than be out of his Father's will. So being in the center of the Father's will meant more to Jesus than food or life itself. He desperately wanted to be in the Father's will. What a challenge for you and I, like how easily we sell out to get our hands on the things that we desire. So easily. We just give up because we want the things that we want. How easily we give in to compromise and sin so that we can satisfy the lusts of our flesh on a regular basis. And so like the, the foolish Jews, like we love bread more than we love the Father at times, don't we? Anybody like bread in this room? A good sourdough? I mean, come on, you know, it's like, you know, Jesus or sourdough? Um, it, that's a really hard one sometimes. But the second temptation is this, Matthew 4, 5 through 7. He says, then the devil took him to the holy city. He set him on the pinnacle of the temple and he said to him, if you're the son of God, <laughs> throw yourself down for it is written he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone and Jesus said to him again it is written you shall not put the Lord your God to the test so in this instance Satan tries to get Jesus to perform the miraculous um, apart from the will of the father like forget the will of the father just do something miraculous Jesus save yourself Prove to everybody who it is that you are. And so Jesus, or Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, and, and this spot was said to be like potentially 450 feet high. 
And then Satan misquotes this Psalm 91, verses 11, 12. Satan leaves out this phrase that says, to guard you in all your ways. And he misrepresents this passage. And then this is God's promise to protect Jesus as he carried out the Father's will. Like Satan was trying to get Jesus to step outside of God's will and work a miracle to prove that he was who he claimed to be. And he was also trying to get Jesus to accept this like his immediate fame. Like if you do this, they're all gonna follow you. Like they're gonna recognize you for who you are. So Jesus, just make this happen. Like if Jesus had stepped off the pinnacle of the temple and just floated to the ground, everybody would have been like, oh, well, who's that? That must be him, right? So he's tempting Jesus with, with fame. Like he would have been instantly famous if Jesus would have done this. But again, Jesus responds in the proper way. His response was actually a response of faith. Jesus says, it's never right to operate contrary to God's will, regardless of the outcome. And that goes for you and I. Like, God honors obedience, not outcomes. God honors obedience in your life. And there's this lesson for us that far too many people in churches, for that matter, in our day, right now, seem to think that the ends justify the means. So they have this mentality that everything is all right as long as a few people are brought to the Lord and as long as it turns out all right in the end, we can do whatever we want. And so God blesses his word and God blesses obedience to his word. That's what God desires. And so the increase, again, it belongs to the Lord. Obedience to his word is our responsibility. The, the, the external prosperity does not mean that God approves of what we're doing. It's a really sour way to look at things when we begin to think that just because somebody has external prosperity and something you know, that nobody else has and it looks like they've made it on the outside means somehow they've done something right on the inside. It doesn't mean that. In fact, Jesus' greatest opposition were the Pharisees, of which he calls what? Whitewashed tombs. The outside is clean and it looks perfect, but the inside is dirty and rotten and is actually rotting away. Like they, they looked great on the outside, but they were not great on the inside. Jesus cares more about the inside than he does the outside. Jesus always blesses his word and he blesses obedience to his word. In Numbers 20, verses 1 through 12, Moses was commanded to speak to this rock so that water would come out of it. You guys know the story. Instead, he strikes the rock twice. God graciously provides water, but then it actually prohibits Moses from being able to even go into the promised land because of his disobedience, because he struck the rock. Like, I would rather have the blessings in the presence of God than, than the prosperity that can be achieved through human means. I would rather have the blessing and presence of God than any sort of external prosperity. The third and final temptation in Matthew 4, 8 through 10, was this. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. So weird that he's showing Jesus this, right? Like, this is mine anyway. Let, let me show you this, Jesus. And he says to him, all these things I will give to you if you'll fall down and worship me, Jesus. And Jesus says to him, Be gone, Satan. I love that. <laughs> Be gone. 
For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And so in, in this section here, Satan, as the God of this world, offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world. Like Satan is attempting to get Jesus to take the crown and bypass the cross, right? Just take the crown. You don't need to go through what it is that you're going to have to experience. And so for a simple bow to, to the limited sovereignty of, Sa of Satan, Jesus could skip the pain of the crucifixion and he could have the world fall at his feet. And apparently, Satan had the power to grant this promise, but Jesus responds in a way that honors God once again. He reminds Satan that only God is worthy of his worship. Only God. You see, Jesus did not come into this world just for a crown. That wasn't what Jesus came for. It wasn't just so he could be declared king and put on the crown and sit on the throne. There was a crown for sure in Jesus' future. But for Jesus, the path to the crown actually went through the cross. He laid his life down for it. So Jesus came to this world to die. He, he would obtain the crown by laying down his life on the cross. And there's also a lesson in this for you and I. That Satan wants us to take the easy, painless way. He always wants you to take the easy way out. He promises us an easy path if we just allow him to be the ruler of our lives. If you just listen to him, if you just heed to my way, I will show you the shortcut. It will not be as painful and as excruciating if you were to walk in obedience. Because obedience is hard, but obedience is worthwhile. We need to walk in God's ways. We need to trust the Lord to give us the things that he desires to bring into our lives. And then in verse 13 in Mark 1, there's this testimony of the temptation. It says, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Luke says in Luke 4:13, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This certainly wouldn't have been the last encounter that Jesus would have with the enemy, with Satan. He would ultimately defeat Satan forever when he dies on the cross. But here, in this particular temptation, in his temptation, Jesus won a great victory over Satan. Like, it needs to be said here that the temptation of Jesus was not about trying to get him to sin. Jesus Christ was God in human flesh, and it was impossible for him to sin but the Bible is clear in this matter, right? For he knew no sin. In 2 Corinthians it says that. Second, that he did no sin in 1 Peter. Hebrews 4, 3, or 1 John 3 and 5, that he had no sin. Yet he was tempted in every single way that mankind is tempted. That he was tempted in the physical realm, that he was tempted in the emotional realm, that he was tempted in the spiritual realm, just like you and I are. And so the question becomes, if he couldn't have sinned, were his temptations even legitimate? If, he, if there's no way he could have sinned, were the temptations legitimate? And the answer is yes. They were real. The temptation of Jesus was not to see whether he would commit sin or whether he wouldn't commit sin, but it was to prove that he could not sin. It was to prove that he, he actually was the sinless son of God in that wilderness, that like he was the Messiah that had come for you and I. And so, again, there are some lessons that we can glean from his temptation, lessons that can help us in our day of testing. One, Jesus overcame because he was sinless. And we fall because we're actually sinful people. Anybody in this room not sinful? Like, 
We, we fall because we're sinful. We're not sinless people. So how can we obtain victory in our own battle with sin? But watching Jesus in his trial can help us through ours. There are two things that we need to take note of. First is that he was filled with the Spirit, as Mark 1.10 says. Second, that he was filled with the Word of God. What was Jesus' response to each of the three of the enemy's temptations? He quoted Scripture. He used Scripture to combat what the enemy was throwing at him. Three times he's tempted. Three times he reaches back into the Old Testament, out of the book of Deuteronomy, for the exact word that he needed in that moment. And the Spirit of God literally gives him the the ability to stand against the attacks of the devil. Like the Word of God gave him the ammunition to defend himself while he attacked back. Like if we want to be successful in our battle, in the temptations that we fall into with our flesh and the devil, we need to be sure that we're living lives that are controlled by the Spirit. This is why... Having a spirit-led life is so important. We need to be a people who fill our lives with the word of God. Like this is not about encouraging people to read the Bible because that's what religious people do. Or just learning scripture because you have to have scripture memorized. It's about locking something up in your heart so that in those times of testing, you know what to pull on to throw back at the enemy when he throws other things at you. Like, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that we stand up in the face of adversity and we begin to use the word of God as the ammunition to fire back. Devil, you have no authority over me. And what's so amazing about the story is that Jesus, he he gets driven out into this barren wilderness He does this battle with the devil. He walks off out of this whole situation with the victory. And it's crazy that Jesus went into that wilderness and faced the devil on his own turf. And he did this so that he might help us when our times of testing come. He understands because he's been there before. He's able to see those or to help those who look to him for the power to overcome their trials and temptations. He fought the battle so that he could hand us the victory. I want to end with a story, and I'll I'll invite the worship team to come up. Um, And I'd encourage you to go watch this video clip if you get a chance to go uh, do that. But in 1961, there was a man by the name of, of Adolf Eichmann. Anybody know this name? A handful of you might know this story. The man by the name of Adolf Eichmann. And Adolf Eichmann went on trial for his crimes as one of the, the principal architects with regards to the, the, the Jewish Holocaust. And so one of the men who testified against this man was a concentration camp survivor. And uh, his name was Yahil Danur. And if you watch this video clip from Eichmann's trial in 1961, you can go look up CBS's 60 Minutes. Um, how they did a thing, an expose on it, and you can actually watch the full trial. Like It's old video footage in black and white, but it's really amazing. And it shows this man, Denur, like he walks into the courtroom, and, um, and he's, he sits down at this, at, at, um, to be exam- cross-examined or whatever by the judge. And as soon as this man, Eichmann, walks into the, uh, into the room, this, this man, Denur, begins to like sob. Like he starts weeping uncontrollably. And next thing you know, 
he faints and he collapses into a heap on the floor. I mean, it's just the craziest video to watch. This man just like, the minute he sees this ex-Nazi that was sending people off into the con these concentration camps and he himself was in a concentration camp, he has this crazy reaction and he just faints. And uh, the judge starts pounding the gavel in the courtroom and it's kind of the whole place kind of goes crazy for a bit while this guy's fainted on the ground and they're trying to figure out what's going on. When you see it, like you wonder, like what in the world just happened? Um, like you're like, was he overcome with hatred? Was he overcome with fear? Like what, what happened in this moment? And actually it wasn't any of those things. And the interview with him later is really interesting. So Denura explained later that when he saw Eichmann, that he realized Eichmann was not the godlike army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. He was a real person. And, and then Eichmann says that he saw, or Denura says that he saw Eichmann as an ordinary man for the first time. And this is what Denura said. He said, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I'm capable to do this, that I am exactly like he is. And so this journalist, Mike Wallace from CBS, from 60 Minutes, sums up Denur's sentiments by saying, Eichmann is in all of us, is what he says. What a powerful statement. Horrifying, actually. But I actually think in that statement, it sort of captures the, the, this truth about man's nature. Because as a result of the fall, like sin is in each one of us in this room. Not, not just the like susceptibility to sin, but sin itself. Like the possibility to do the greatest evil in the world exists within each one of us in the room. We're all only one poor decision away from making a really poor choice and going down a really poor path. One, we're all one decision away from that. And the only hope we have is that we serve Jesus. So two things I want to leave you with. One is that you need to be sure that you've devoted your life to Jesus. Do you believe that he's the way, the truth, and the life? Is he Lord and master of your life? Because that is the only hope that you have. Second, if you're devoted to Jesus, you need to be sure that you're filled with the Spirit and filled with the Word of God. That is the only ammunition that you have in this crazy world that we live in. So when we as a church say, and this is not a slam against the way any other churches do it, but we say like, we we want to go verse by verse through passages of Scripture. We want to talk about the Word of God. We don't want to just give your ears like the, the cultural stuff that you need, but we want to actually dig into the Word and understand the Word. I mean, our hope really is that at the core of that is that there's something that you're learning about the Word of God, that you're planting it deep within your hearts, that you leave these times on Sunday morning and you begin to process this even more. You begin to memorize passages and this not just so you can win the Sunday school prize right but so that you can actually have the ammunition you can fight the battle that you're going to be engaged in because each one of the in this room has the potential of becoming Eichmann 
We desperately need to be purified by Jesus. We desperately need to be led by his spirit. And we desperately need to be filled with his word. We need it so badly. And all of us in this room are fighting, will fight these battles with temptation, but there's help in the Lord if you'll receive it. Like, he's actually waiting to save you if you are lost. He's waiting to strengthen you if you are weak. And he's waiting to forgive you if you have fallen. And so this morning as we close in a time of prayer, those are really my challenges for you. Like, are there those in this room that need his help? You find yourself in that wilderness season. Are you willing to receive the Lord's help this morning? Are there those of you in this room that know you're lost? You're wandering around aimlessly trying to figure out what it is you you need and what it is you're looking for. And the last thing you want to do is actually turn to Jesus Christ as the answer. But he is the only way. He is the only hope that you have. Are there some of you in this room that just feel weak and you need strength? Are there some of you in this room that have fallen and you need his forgiveness? I want to pray and ask him to bring that this morning to those of you that would call upon him. So would you guys stand with me? Just bow your heads if you're here this morning and there's something you need prayer for, raise your hand. Okay, you guys all see those hands. Keep your hands up. In all boldness, keep those hands up. Those of you that are around them, lay hands on these people whose hands are up this morning. Find them. Keep your hands up. This is the church being the church. (laughs) Awesome. I'm going to pray just real short here, and then I'm just going to give us 30 seconds to pray on our own for those people that we have laid hands on. Jesus, we thank you for each person in this room that have laid raise their hands, God. We know that some are weak and they need your strength. There are some that have fallen that desperately need your forgiveness. There are some that are lost that desperately need to be saved. There are some that find themselves in the midst of a season, a wilderness, temptation in their life right now that seems insurmountable. But Jesus, you are the hope of the world. And you are our only hope. You are the only thing we can turn to in times of need. And so right now, Jesus, I pray for each of those with their hands up that they begin to turn their hearts, their minds, their attention to you this morning to ask you to come and to fill those needs that they have, Lord. Whether that be they need to be forgiven. Whether that be that they need to be found. Whether that be that they need to be strengthened. Would you come by your power, in your name, Jesus, and begin to meet their needs right where they're at. Just take a moment and pray for those people around you while you have hands on them. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you would like to reach out to us or see what we currently have going on as a church, head to anthemcda.com or find us on social media at anthemcda. We can't wait to see you next week.